Welcome to the Thrive Church weekly message. We hope you enjoy this message and we pray that it blesses you. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit thrivechurch.co.nz. Thanks, Bend. Morning, everybody. How are you going? Yeah, you guys are the second service. And like I told the guys in the first service, the, everyone that comes along to the second service, I think you guys are just better Christians than the, the ones in the first service. <laughs> because you save all your energy and then you bring your best to God. You see? <clears throat> Hopefully the first service don't hear that. They got a slightly different version of that. Everybody doing all right? You doing well? Can I be really honest with you this morning? Uh, I am fighting a, an infection that's not contagious, so you're okay, uh, but I've been on antibiotics for three weeks, and one of the side effects of the infection is that like, it, I get wasted really easily, and so I put a lot of energy into the first service, and I really want you guys to get a lot of energy in the second service and, and really capture what God's got to say, but what would really help me and make it easier is if you guys could give a lot of energy back, because the more energy I get back from you, the less effort I have to kind of pull out of myself. And I really don't want to just fall flat on my face at some point during the, during the message, because at the moment I feel a little bit wobbly on my feet. So, yes, like that. That's good. Thank you, Lisa. Huh, we'll, we'll get there together, eh? So for those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Josh, and together with my wife Liz, who's looking invisible in the front row, she's at the back on host team at the moment, we're on the leadership team along with Peter and Lynn and Glenn and Debbie and, and Edward. Uh, if you don't know me, and the church is growing, every time I get up there's new faces here, which is awesome because a growing church is a healthy church, and gee, it's exciting to be part of Thrive at the moment, um, and to be a part of what we're looking to, to move into, and, and you know what talks are going on around buildings and things, and Oh, it's, it is really, really exciting. But the flip side of having so many new faces is that there are people that I just haven't had the chance to connect with or, or get to know uh, in the way that you would if it was a, a little wee church. And sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, I wish, I wish that church was the way it was. Well, essentially when you say that, what you're saying is, I wish that church was unhealthy. Because a lack of growth means lack of health. Anyone who's ever had kids or tried to plant a tree or had a kitten knows that when you look at that tree and a year later it's still exactly the same size as it was before, you're like, something's wrong with that tree. And same with church too. So a growing church is a healthy church, which is cool. But if you don't know me, here's a little bit about me. Uh, so I'm married to Liz. We've been married for coming up 11 years. We've got three children, two of which are normal. That's, that's not true, Debbie. None of them are normal, actually. Uh, Jessica's our oldest, she is seven, and the older she gets, the more convinced I am that Liz and I are not actually her parents, because she's so tidy, she is like immaculate, you go into a bedroom and all of your soft toys are lined up in, in height, you know, like it's all, or the next day it might be in alphabetical order or, or something like that, and her bed is so perfectly made, there's not a crease on it, the other day I went in there and she, I said, who made your bed? Did mum make your bed? She said, no, no, I made it. I'm not sure because I haven't caught her doing it, but I think she might iron her duvet after her bed's been made. There's not a crease on it. There are soldiers in the army that are jealous of my seven-year-old daughter's ability to, to make her bed. And like I say, her, her bedroom is just immaculate, and I can tell you right now, she did not get that from her mother. <laughs> She's not here, eh? 
man, she's... No, it's all right. Um, Harrison is five. He is the friendliest kid you will ever meet. If he were an animal, he'd be a golden retriever, and he'd be the kind of golden retriever that licks burglars while they rob your house. Most parents are trying to convince their kids to not take food from strangers. We're trying to work on Harrison to not approach strangers to ask for food. <laughs> and, and then there's, there's Darcy, who is four, who at some point, in my opinion, has developed a rather unhealthy attachment to paracetamol. So she'll come up to me. She's the only kid I know that will fake being sick so she can have medication you know, our other kids, you had to like pin them down. I was like, Liz, you grab their arms, I'll grab their legs. And we're trying to, you know, get some paracetamol into their mouth. But Darcy will come up and she'll just be like, Dad, oh, my tummy, Dad. I think I need paracetamol or, you know, whatever it is that she calls it. I'm like, Darcy, you're not sick. You were just running around the house with underpants on your head two minutes ago. You're actually fine. She says, no, Dad, I need, I need my fix. I said, Darcy, you're fine. And stop calling it your fix, because it's really creepy. So those, that's our family. You know, you've got Liz and me. You've got Jess, who's the sergeant major. You've got Harrison, who spends all his time looking for white, nondescript vans to jump into. <laughs> and then you've got Darcy, who I thought was just grumpy a lot of the time, but I think she might just go through savage withdrawal symptoms after she hasn't had paracetamol for a while. So that's, that's us. Debbie and Lisa, you guys are great. Hey, you're awesome. I love you guys. So I want to talk to you this morning about something that I think is, it's the most, if not the most important, certainly one of the most important things that you must have in your life if you want to be able to connect with people and connect with God the way that God created us to connect. Because you see, God created us for connection. We're hardwired for connection. We're designed for connection. We're designed to connect with each other in a deep way, in a meaningful way, in a way that impacts us. I'm designed to impact you through relationship. You're designed to impact me through relationship. We're designed for connection. The Bible says that deep calls unto deep. That as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We are designed to live in communion with God and community with each other. Sean did a brilliant job last week, you know, in five minutes, sort of just opening the box on what community is. And he talked about a lot of different things. But there was one thing in particular that he touched on very briefly, and I thought, gee, that's super important. So I want to talk to you about that this morning. The first chapter of Genesis tells the story of creation. And I love that chapter because it's so much fun. There's so much hope in that chapter. You know, God's creating all this stuff. And what I love most about it is that every time God creates something, he steps back, he looks at it, and he's like, that's awesome. You know, he's like constantly complimenting himself. He does all the work. He steps back. He's like, nailed it. That's great. Let there be light. And God saw that there was light, and God saw that it was good. Well, he made it. Of course he'd think it was good. You know, it would be like if I invited you around to my house, and I said, look at my house. I built my house. It's awesome. And then we sat down for dinner, and I said, enjoy dinner. I cooked it. I'm amazing. <laughs> See all these paintings on the wall? I painted all of them. They're perfect. That's kind of what, what God's like. But what I love about the first chapter of Genesis is that God sees the good in everything. Everything he looks at, he sees the good in it. And maybe you're here this morning and that's all you need to hear. God sees the good in everything. But you move on to Genesis chapter 2 and there's something that pops up and God goes, whoa, that's not good. 
He looks at Adam, who's living outside of connection, outside of relationship, because the Bible says that they looked all around the world. They couldn't find anyone suitable for Adam to connect with, to do life with, to have a relationship with. And God looked at Adam, who was living by himself, outside relationship, outside communion, outside community, and God said, that situation is not ideal. That is not good. It's the very first thing the Bible ever describes as not good is someone living outside connection. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that God said it is not good that man should be alone. Talking about mankind, humankind, all of us here. So connection is super important. It's the way that we are built. Even God is connected with himself because there's three of them. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's a tridimensional being. Points to me for getting tridimensional into the message. So there's one thing I think that is super important that we must have in our life if we want to live our life in the way that God intended us to live it, you know, fully devotionally connected to each other on a heart-to-heart level. You guys want to know what that is? Oh, you're already better than the first service. You want to know what that is? Oh, Hayden's into it. Okay. Blake's Blake's into it too, the whole row. No, it's Hayden, Blake. I know you guys' names. Flip. Because we're connected. Um... You lost my train of thought, Blake. Yes. What was I saying, Lynn? Yes. Oh, yes, you want to know what it is. Oh, I'm not going to tell you. I've got to talk about something else first. On Thursday, Darcy went and got her, oh, see, suspense. Do you feel the suspense? Oh, I just want to know, Josh. Just tell me. No, I've got to drag this, this message out. On Thursday, Darcy went and got her immunizations. And she's a pretty clued up kid. That's why I have so much her and me. I love Darcy. She's amazing. I told Liz some of the stuff I was going to say. She's like, no, you're banned from saying that about Darcy. I was like, oh, okay then. It might have been because the word drug addict was in there at some point, and she was like, no, they're not allowed to use that word. So she's going to get her immunizations on Thursday. Yeah, it was the right call, definitely. <laughs> uh, on Thursday, she went to get her immunizations, and she's aware that there's needles involved because Harrison had just told her, awesome, big brother and big sister. And so she's not overly stoked thinks it might not be the most enjoyable experience of her four-year life so far. And so we had to say to her, look, honey, it is going to hurt a little bit. Because we're not the sort of parents to just lie and be like, oh, it doesn't hurt. We were like, well, yeah, you're getting needles shoved in your arm. Like, rather you than me, was pretty much what I said. (laughs) Glad you're going and I'm not going. But you get a lollipop afterwards and we get to watch a movie at the end, so it's okay. And also, it's going to help because, you know, when you get an immunization, it's going to protect you from all all this stuff. And I thought during the week, it would be really hard to describe to someone and convince someone to go through the process of getting immunized if they had no concept of sickness or disease. It's like, why would I just shove needles in my arm like that hurts and it would be really hard to communicate to someone the point of an antidote if they had no concept of a poison so before I unpack for you what this thing is that you must have in your life because to be honest with you it can hurt it can be a little bit painful to have it in your life and unless you understand what the poison is that it's protecting you from what it's what it's inoculating you against what it's you know curing you of Uh, you might be tempted to just avoid the whole thing altogether because as humans, we're hardwired to uh, run from pain. You know, our brain is literally hardwired to protect us from pain. That's why when you touch something hot, you pull away before you've even even processed the fact that what you're doing is painful. Your brain is so quick, it says, move, that's painful. And it does the same thing with your emotional self. When you start to push on something that's a little bit painful, your brain says, that's painful, and I'm programmed to protect you from pain, so let's just bail on that. So before I go into this process, can we talk about what 
what we're dealing with, what the issue is really, what the problem is. Let's look at the poison, and then we'll look at the antidote. So if you want to open your Bible, so Genesis chapter 2, you can. That's good. Ben's got the whole chapter memorized, so you can just use his hands. Genesis chapter 2 tells the story, well, the first two chapters really, the whole story of creation. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 2, it's all done. God's all finished. And the word really that you would use to sum up Genesis chapter 2 would be perfect. Everything was perfect. God was, he'd done his six days creation. He'd had his seventh day rest. He's sitting on his throne. His feet are up on his footstool. He's got a drink in one hand, some bar snacks in the other hand. He's all done. He's happy. He's given it his tick of approval. Everything is perfect. Adam is perfect. Eve is perfect. Their relationship is perfect. Their relationship with God is perfect. The equilibrium of the planet is perfect. It's healthy. The temperature is perfect. The weather is perfect. The pH level in the soil is perfect. You get the idea. Everything is perfect. Absolute perfection. It is literally heaven on earth. God's kingdom on earth represented in the garden. Perfection. If the Bible just ended there, the world would be a very different place right now. But it doesn't. And there's a little wee PS at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Right at the end, verse 25, this little wee PS. And it's like God's inserted it because he wants us to know something. In the end of chapter 2, everything's perfect. Everything's all wrapped up. Put a nice bow on it. God says in verse 25, you know, through the Holy Spirit who helped write the Bible, and Adam and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. It's really interesting to me that God goes out of his way to communicate to us that in the garden that he created, there was no shame. There are a million things that were not in the garden that God could have chosen to highlight. No pain, no death, no destruction, no hatred, no murder, no lying, no jealousy. So many different things that God could have said, hey, this wasn't here. But he chose to highlight the fact that shame was not in the garden. It's like he said, you need to understand, guys, this is so important, I'm going to put it in the Bible so that even thousands of years later, Josh can preach about it. There is no shame in the garden. In God's perfect creation, shame is outside of that. You cannot have shame and wholeness coexisting. And God says it's really important, guys, that you understand that this emotion, this feeling was not created by me. It's not in my plan. It's not in my garden. It's outside. And he makes the point of highlighting that in a little wee PS at the end of Genesis chapter 2. It's really important to remember because then you move on to Genesis chapter 3. And if the word for Genesis chapter 2 was perfect, then the word for Genesis chapter 3 is just Because Genesis chapter 3 is where Adam and Eve, you know the story. They go into the garden. God blesses them. He says, you can do whatever you want, guys. You can eat from any tree that you want. Just pick what you want. The only thing you can't do is eat from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just leave that alone. But everything else, you know, go for it. And we read the Bible and we think, honestly, like I reading it the other day, I was reading it the other day, and I thought, flip, like how hard is that really? Like how hard is it to not eat fruit? I do it all the time. <laughs> it's, there's so many other things to choose from, you know, and yet the Bible tells us that they got into a conversation with the devil. Well, that's a big mistake to start with, right, just even having a conversation. You might think, oh, I'm just having a harmless conversation with the devil. He's asked my opinion on something, <laughs> you know. Devil comes along to Eve and says, hey, I've got a question. She's like, yeah, what is it? First mistake. Hey, I've got a question. I don't care. You know, not talking to you. And so she, she engages in a conversation, and one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And before you know it, they're standing there holding the fruit in their hands, and they're thinking, gee, this looks pretty good. 
I was telling the first service that sometimes I lie in bed and I think things. It's a really good time to think. On the bed, in the shower, on the toilet. Good thinking times. Liz said not to say that too. Liz! Yeah, she's wise. Yeah, not wise enough to leave me in here by myself. Um, And I had this thought, I wonder if Adam and Eve are popular in heaven. Because everybody knows what they did. And it kind of stuffed all of our lives up. Like, just being honest. That's sort of my opinion of it. And I thought, I wonder if I went to heaven and I was having a tour around heaven, you know, like it was heaven O week, H week, whatever you want to call it. And I've got like a tour guide and we're sort of walking around. And he's like, that's where you eat. And I was like, locked in. Remember that place, you know. <laughs> where do you sleep? Oh, you don't sleep. There's no sleeping in, in heaven. Okay, so there's more time to eat. All good. You know, walking around, he says, oh, there's Elijah. Wow, Elijah, one of my favorite Old Testament prophets. That's cool. There's Habakkuk. Who? Oh, forget that guy. You know, one of, the, one of the minor prophets, only four or five chapters stuck in the middle of the Old Testament. You'll never find it. You know? God's like, we'll just stick it in here where no one ever gets that far anyway. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, everyone that's here for the first service is like, oh, Molly has gone off script. Um, you know, there's Elijah. He's awesome. There's David sitting over there playing his harp making beautiful music. There's Samson doing push-ups. There's Esther, super attractive Esther, you know, and I'm walking around going, wow, that's cool, that's cool. There's Joshua, oh, the guy that I'm named after, super good looking. Wow, that's cool. You know, there's Adam and Eve. What's up? You know, is that, is that what it would be like? You know, I think of all the things that's gone wrong in my life and I'm like, mm. you know, like how hard is it to, to not eat? Not eat fruit, but, you know, I'm just joking around. They take the fruit, and the Bible says they saw that it looked good, and they decided to, to eat it. They gave it a bite. Now, maybe I've seen too many movies. Scratch that. I've definitely seen too many movies. But if this were me, and I was writing this story, and I wanted to communicate how big a deal this was, because you've got to understand, as soon as Eve's teeth break the skin on that piece of fruit, the Bible says they have obeyed the devil. And the Bible says that we are slaves to those that we obey. And so in that moment, even though God had given Adam and Eve control and authority and dominion over the planet, in that moment, they handed all of that over to the devil, control of the planet. They opened the door to death and destruction and despair and sickness and disease and everything that's ever gone wrong over the how many, how many thousands of years that we've been around, everything that's ever gone wrong can all be traced back to this one moment. This is an incredibly important moment in history. And if I were writing this story, I would have written it like, you know, she bites into the, you know, tradition says it's an apple. We don't know what it was. It was probably a fajoa or something like that. You know, if it were a Fajoa and I was there, then you guys would be all good. <laughs> but she bites into the fruit. And now if I were writing it, I would have written it like, in the moment her teeth broke the skin, this force field exploded out across the planet, bending the trees back. There's deer in the fields like, what? You know? Birds are like taking off and, and flying around in flocks and there's this massive earthquake and you know, Adam and Eve are like, oh, what have we done? And there's you know, thunder and lightning, this huge cloud rolls across like the Lion King, just appears out of nowhere. And it's, she's just like, Adam, Eve, what have you done? How hard is it to not eat fruit? I do it all the time. You know, something like that. 
But that's not what happens. The Bible says that she bites the fruit, you know, gives it to Adam. Adam takes a bite. And it's like super anticlimactic. Who's writing this story? It says that their eyes were opened. They looked at each other and they realized they were naked. And you're like, is that, is that it? Like seriously, the whole, you know, evil has just been unleashed over the planet. Satan's now got control. You know, they've just set in motion a sequence of events that's going to culminate in Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. And the only thing that happens is that Eve looks at Adam and goes, what's that? You know, and Adam looks at Eve and goes, where's yours? Like, is that it? Seriously? Like, the Bible says they became aware that they were naked. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like that's a step in the right direction. Like, I have an awareness that I'm naked when I'm naked, and I'm really happy about that. I'm really glad that I am aware when I'm naked, because the alternative could look very different right now. If I didn't have an awareness of when I was naked, we all have that. So I'm kind of like, is that seriously it? That's the, that's the whole thing? You've just unlocked the door to hell itself and the only problem or issue or the only thing that's changed is that you can tell you're in the nutty? Like that's, that's it? But it's not, is it? Because it's what they do after that that shows us what's actually happened. Because the Bible says that, you know, they, their eyes were opened, they saw that they were naked, and then they tried to cover themselves up. Why would they do that? Because in the last verse of chapter 2, it tells us that God made them that way. God made them naked. So why are they now trying to cover themselves up? Here's a question. What do you think they are feeling in that moment that they would be trying to hide their bodies from each other? What's that feeling? Shame. What's the very thing that God made a big point about telling us was not in the garden when he created it? Shame. Isn't it interesting that God goes out of his way? He bends over backwards to make sure that we understand there's no shame where there's wholeness. There's no shame in the garden. And the very first thing that enters the garden after Adam and Eve's sin is shame. You guys reckon that's a big deal? You think there might be something in that? So God comes into the garden later on in the day, and he's calling out for Adam, and he can't find him. And eventually Adam comes out, and in one sentence, he pretty much sums up what shame does, how shame works, how it progresses through, and how it affects your life. In one sentence. Like, you couldn't, I couldn't write something that beautiful if it wasn't so sad. And Adam comes out, and he says, I was afraid. So now we have a secondary emotion. The first one was shame. The second thing that we see in the garden now is fear. And he says, I was afraid. And I think, well, yeah, probably fair enough you're afraid because you've made a massive boo-boo. You know, like when you were a kid, you made a mistake. You're like, oh, you're afraid of what's going to happen when mum or dad finds out that you did what you did. You know, there's going to be consequences. So I'm thinking, of course you're afraid. He should say, I was afraid because I ate the fruit. That's what I would say if I was in that situation. But Adam doesn't. He doesn't even care about that. He's not even thinking about the fact that he just made the biggest mistake of his life. All he can think about is how shameful he feels. And he says, I was afraid because I was naked. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. I was afraid because I was naked. If you want to put that around the other way so it's in um, you know, order, he's saying, because I was afraid, oh, sorry, because I was naked, I was afraid. And then he says these three words, so I hid. There's a sequence here that Adam is 
unraveling for us. The first emotion we experience in this cycle is shame. Now, shame is simply this feeling, this voice that tells us that I am not good enough. That's all that it is. And this can come through many different avenues. 99.999% of the time, I reckon it's not even our fault. It's a, it's a mean kid at school that says, oh, you're ugly. Boom, shame attaches itself to that statement. And what shame does is it attaches itself and it attacks your identity and it forces us to look at ourselves through the lens of shame. It could be something as simple as, you know, overhearing a parent's conversation and they say something and you take it out of context because you're five or six and as kids we're really bad at processing stuff and we carry that with us, you know, for the rest of our life. Maybe we had uh, a bad relationship and someone, you know, dumped us and said really mean things or even didn't say mean things, just dumped us. Or we, it was a mutual thing and we broke up but there's still that feeling of rejection and shame comes along and says, you know why that relationship didn't work out? Because you're not good enough. Didn't do anything wrong, it's just life. Maybe you watch a movie or you're flipping through a magazine and you see a photo of a model or something and you think, oh man, she's so beautiful, I could never look like that. Shame comes along and says, do you know why you can't look like that? Because you're not good enough. You know, or, or guys, you're looking at you know, some buff guy in the gym and you're thinking, oh, I could never have muscles like that. And again, it's, it can come through any number of things. What I want to communicate to you this morning is that, you know, Brene Brown who's a sociologist, psychiatrist, who spent more time studying this than probably anybody else. She's got a TED Talk that you can watch, which is brilliant. It's about 20 minutes long. Um, it's got about 40, 50 million people have watched it. And so she knows more about this topic than anybody else. And she says, the thing with shame is that everybody has it. Everybody struggles with it. I have it. I struggle with it. I struggle with that feeling of I'm not, I'm not good enough. Who's ever, if you've got kids, who've ever thought, oh, I'm not a good enough mum? You know, you're talking with your kids, rah, you just, you've had it up to here and you yell at them and they run out and you think, yeah, I could have handled that better. And then this voice comes in, you know, you're just not a good dad. Everybody has this voice that comes in. We all struggle with it. The other thing that Brene Brown says is that the less you talk about it, the more you've got, which is an interesting thought. But the way this cycle works is that we experience shame and shame is that voice that says, you're not good enough, I'm not good enough. And like Adam said, that then leads to fear. It leads to a fear that people around me will learn or discover that I'm not good enough. And if they do that, what's going to happen? They're going to reject me. And because we're wired for communication, it's part of our DNA, there's almost nothing more emotionally hurtful than being rejected, nothing more emotionally damaging than being rejected by someone. And so because that's terrifying to us and because our brain is hardwired to protect us from pain, we do what Adam did, what Eve did, what every other person on the planet does when they feel fear around something like that. We withdraw and we hide. We hide who we are. We hide the parts of ourselves that we think don't fit in. We hide the bits of ourselves that we don't want people to know about. So there's shame, which leads to fear, which leads to hiding. And then God comes into the garden and Adam and Eve aren't there because they're hiding, which means he can't connect with them. So the ultimate outcome of this whole process is a disconnection. The whole agenda of shame which the devil released into the garden and he chose to release before anything else, its whole agenda, its whole purpose, the whole goal of shame is to create disconnection. And what happens is when we get to that place of disconnection, 
um, because we've hidden ourselves, we haven't been able to connect. Like if I hide who I really am and I hide big parts of me because I'm worried that Glenn's not going to like me, then I can never connect with Glenn on a deeply honest, integrous, emotional level because I'm never giving him access to all of me. Does that make sense? And because I can't connect with him on an emotional level, I never feel connected with him. And so what happens is I go, flip, I just don't have any friends. You know, there's no one that I just really connect with. It's all surface level stuff. And so then that voice says, do you know why you've got no friends? It's because you're not good enough. And the whole cycle starts all over again. Shame is a poison. And it's something we all struggle with. So remember I said I wanted to talk to you about that one thing that we must have in our life if we want to be able to connect with people. And I said it can be a little bit painful, but it's like an antidote to a poison. I want to tell you what that, what that one thing is. What you must have in your life, and this is what Brene Brown talks about as well. You must have, I must have, we must all have together vulnerability. Vulnerability is the antidote to the poison of shame. If there was one thing that I wanted you to go home, have a chat with your spouse about, your partner about, your friends about, your kids about, one thing that I want you to let roll around in your head this week, it's this one statement that vulnerability is the antidote to the poison of shame. Because the way vulnerability works is it tackles shame at its root and it disempowers it. Shame says, I can't tell Glenn what's really going on in my life because if I do, then Glenn might reject me. Right? But vulnerability says you have to open yourself up and you have to you know, expose yourself against, you know, emotionally to this person, to Glenn in my example, um, and allow, that, allow him to minister to you and bring healing. Does that make sense? So vulnerability it, it involves doing the exact opposite of what shame is trying to convince you to do. Shame is trying to convince you to go it alone, do it by yourself, keep it tight, don't trust anyone. Vulnerability says, no, we're a part of a community. You have to open yourself up. The word vulnerability comes from a Latin word, vulna, which literally means to open yourself up to the chance of wounding. And so vulnerability is the ability to open yourself up knowing that there's a chance of wounding. So there's two rules when it comes to being vulnerable. Number one, you have to do it. I have to do it. We all have to do it because if we don't do it, we just keep on the same shame cycle. And the second rule is you must do it with the right person. You have to be very wise about who you choose to be vulnerable with because if you open yourself up emotionally to someone and it's not the right person and maybe you know they just don't handle it the right way or maybe they've got issues similar to you have and you opening yourself up just highlights to them how they're feeling about things and they reject you in that space, it's going to make it 10 times harder for you to open yourself up again you know, further down the line. So be very wise about who you choose to be vulnerable with and you'll have different levels of vulnerability as well. You'll have some things where you go, look, I'm okay sharing this with this person, but all the way down here, look, I really massively high level of trust to, to open this up. But you still have to journey through that process. And if somebody does come to you and they are being vulnerable, you need to appreciate how precious that moment is and how delicately you need to handle that situation. Because in that moment, how you respond could be the difference between them living a lifestyle of vulnerability and disempowering shame in their life or blocking the whole thing up and never telling anybody where they're at ever again. So that's a, that's a very... Um, heavy responsibility to carry. So, very hard to preach on vulnerability uh, without being vulnerable. So let me tell you a story about how this worked in my life. The thing with shame, like I say, we've all got it. So let's take away the shame straight away of having shame, because we all have it. 
I haven't met a single person in my life who at some point in their life hasn't gone, oh, I'm not good enough. Just, oh, I can't do it. Oh, I'm not good enough. And what shame does is it burrows deep, 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 deep down, and it's so deep down that we don't even know that it's there. If you had asked me at any point over the last 15 years if I had shame in my life or if I thought I wasn't good enough, I'd be like, no, nah, I'm, I'm great. But the truth is that it was there. It was just so deep, deep, deep down that I didn't know it was there. And it was affecting the way that I lived my life, and it was affecting my relationships, and I was totally oblivious to it. So when I was 17, my dad died. And it was a very sudden thing. He had an asthma attack, so you know he was there one day, and then the next day, oh, that's three clicks, but just the one. He was gone. Um, so we just went to bed. Dad was alive, got up. Dad was not alive. Uh, no chance to say goodbye or process through it. You know, I was 17. Uh, he was only 40, which is only five years older than me. And so that affects you. But what can you do? You know, you've got to carry on. So I finished school and got a job and got married and had kids. You guys are getting more vulnerability than the first service. <laughs> I'm catching the Glen, the Glen vibe. <laughs> you know, so you, you get married and you move on. And so I've been married for almost 11 years. And, you know, I love my wife and my wife loves me. And we've got three beautiful kids and we've got a lovely home and, you know, great extended family and friends and stuff. And, and everything's all good. But, you know, throughout our marriage, throughout our 10 years of, of marriage, coming up 11 years, we would, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but we would do this thing um, that we call uh, arguing. Have you ever done that? No, just us? Okay. Uh, not a lot. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't sit down with friends and go like, you know, can you give me some sort of breakdown on how often you argue, how long your arguments are on a scale of 1 to 10, how intense are your arguments? So you just kind of, I don't know, I feel like we're a normal, normal couple. You know, we get on really well, like Liz is my best friend, all that kind of stuff. I'm just being really clear because once I spoke in church and I talked about a conflict that Liz and I had had and then feedback came through that someone was worried in the church about our marriage. So like our marriage is like sweet, it's all good. But we argue like everybody does. And most of the time our arguments will boil down to, uh, you know, they'll start over different things, but once you get sort of five minutes into it, you realize that you're just really dealing with this, this one issue. And it was an issue that would pop up consistently in our marriage. And that was, Liz would say, I just don't feel that, you know, that, that you value what I do around the house or that, you know, that you care about me. And the reason she would feel that way is because her love language, you guys all know love languages, you know? Our life group did a, a test on that the other day. Her love language, her top one is words of affirmation, which means the way that she expresses love and receives love is words of affirmation. People telling her, gee, I love you, or you're beautiful, or you're doing a great job as a mum, all that kind of stuff. She just loves it, just fills her love tank right up. Words of affirmation for me, <laughs> like right down the bottom, almost into negative territory. It's just not the way that I'm wired. So I don't naturally communicate with her in the way that she receives love. I'll do you know, uh, like quality time, that kind of stuff. So I'll, I'll put a huge amount of time and energy to planning a holiday or into planning a night out. 
And then often would go out and the whole time I'm just like, oh, so tired because I put all this effort into planning it. Yeah, and Liz would be happier if I just came home with fish and chips and told her she was beautiful and gave her a hug. So often our arguments would, you know, would go like that. She'd be like, oh. And so one day she said to me, you know, I was, I was trying to get her to understand how this didn't come naturally. And I thought, how can I explain this? And I sat her down. I said, honey, I need you to understand. It's not that I think all these nice things about you and then choose not to say them. I just don't even think them, which I thought would be really helpful <laughs> to understand, like, I'm not a horrible person. It's just not the way that I'm wired, right? But it made it worse for some reason, but I, I don't know. And so that was a few years ago, and I realized that was a, not the correct way to handle it. So, you know, she said to me one day, it would be really nice if we go out for dinner and I've obviously put a lot of effort into getting dressed up and putting makeup on and stuff. If just at some point you could just take a moment, stop what you're doing, and just look at me and see me and say, wow, you look beautiful tonight. And I said to her, totally, I can do that. That's not a problem. And so one day we were getting ready to go out for dinner, and she came out of the bedroom, and she was all dressed up. And, you know, I looked at her, and I was just like, yeah. Like, forget dinner and a movie. Let's go straight to dessert. You guys know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, you do. And then I had this thought, ah, oh, Liz said she likes it when I tell her that she looks great. Well, I should tell her that she looks great, and that'll make her feel good, and it'll guarantee dessert. <laughs> so I went to say to her, man, you look really nice tonight. Like, I opened my mouth, and literally, as I'm about to say, you look really nice, um, this other thought popped into my head, and it was like, Nah. I didn't say anything. And I remember standing there thinking, what just, what just happened there in my brain? So I had a chat with God about us, and I can't remember if it was like an instant download or if it sort of came through over the next couple of days. But essentially, to summarize, what God said was, well, I said to God, why did that happen? Why did I react that way? And God said, you know, ever since your dad died when you were 17, so bear in mind now, this is 18 years ago almost, it's a long time. It's not like it happened last week. 18 years ago, he said, ever since your dad died, you have had a fear of abandonment, a fear of being left behind, a fear of having someone in your life that is there, that means a lot to you, and then the next day is gone. And he said, and underneath that fear, somewhere, is a belief that you're not good enough. Like, how crazy is that? Like, it's not my fault that my dad died. It's not like if I had been a better son or a better person that it wouldn't have happened. But that's the thing about shame is that it can come in and it can attach itself to anything. And so he said, you have this fear that uh, you're going to be abandoned. And so to protect yourself for if that happens, you are not giving all of yourself to your wife and you're not telling her how you feel because you're worried this is all brand new news to me. I had no idea that this was going on in my brain or in my subconscious. He said, you're worried that if you tell her how you feel and really just give yourself 100% to this relationship, that if she leaves, it's going to be a lot more painful for you than if you don't. And so you're thinking, well, I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to hide, which is what everybody does, hide how I feel, hide how I think, and you know all this kind of stuff, so that if she does leave, then you can tell yourself, well... I wasn't really that into her anyway. Does that make sense? It's messed up though, right? Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> and so I had the shame, which led to the fear, 
which led to the hiding. And all of this was happening without me knowing it was happening. And this was happening for year after 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 year. Ten years this was going on in our marriage. Ten years this problem was, was there. Then we didn't know it was there. And so what would happen is because I would hide how I felt, so you've got shame, fear, hiding, it would frustrate Liz, who was feeling like she couldn't connect with me on the level that she wanted to connect with. So it was creating a disconnection. You know, shame, fear, hiding, disconnection. And the very thing that I was, you know, on a subconscious level afraid of happening, I was actually contributing to through my fear of it happening in the first place. It's just crazy. So, you know, that was something that we had to journey through as a couple. And like I say, the antidote to that poison, and it was a poison. It was poisoning the relationship on a very low level. But the antidote to that was to sit down with my wife and open myself up and say, this is what's going on for me. And, you know, that was a safe person to do it to. You can't get much safer than your spouse. Uh, and a safe environment to do it to as well, or do it in. And that then allowed us to, you know, pray together and talk together and bring healing in and all that kind of stuff. And so now it's something that I'm aware of, and, you know, it's much easier for me to, to do what I need to do to fill up her love tank because she's very aware of that fear in my life. And so she goes out of her way to really affirm things. And she'll say things like, I will never, I will never leave you. That kind of stuff, you know, which means a lot. So all I wanted to do this morning, guys, is just to say, hey, shame is something that we all struggle with. And it's literally just that voice that says, I'm not good enough. And we did this in this first service. We'll do it again here. I'll get the band to jump up now. But we're just going to open up the front for anyone that has ever had that feeling in their life, has ever gone, I'm not good enough. Maybe it's something that you struggle with and you're very aware that you struggle with it. Maybe it's something that you're not overly aware that you struggle with, but it is something that you have had to process through at times. I'm not a good enough mum. I'm not a good enough uh, wife or father or son or friend. You know, I'm not good enough at my job, whatever it might be. I'm not good enough at this or I'm not good enough at that. Because God made it very clear that there is no shame in the garden. And that in God's creation, there's no shame. Shame. So if there's no shame there, we should have no shame here, yeah? yeah? All right, so we're going to sing this last song. And just as we do, I want to encourage you, let's all stand up now. If this is spoken to you in any way and you just want to get some prayer on it or even just come up and, and soak in what God's doing, and I said this in the first service, but what shame is saying to you right now is that you don't need to deal with this in front of people. Shame is saying you can stay in your chair, you can just have your God moment here. No one needs to know that you've got you know, anything going on right now. Just stay here. That's what shame's saying. Vulnerability is saying, no, you need to come up the front. You need to open yourself up. So if you do, if you are the sort of person that goes, look, I don't feel like I need prayer. I just want to soak in what God's doing. Come up the front and do it up here. Don't stay in your seat. So as we sing this song, come up the front. We'll pray for you. It'll be awesome. It'll be awesome. Getting prayer is, even if you don't want prayer for that, just come up and just get some prayer. Get some God on you. That'll be cool. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit thrivechurch.co.nz.